It's a, it's a beautiful evening out there, don't you think? It's really so striking, you know, with the kind of the misty rain coming through the trees. Sometimes the quality of quiet that comes with that. And, you know, we have this uh, beautiful evening and as, as I speak to you, you know, so much suffering in this world around kind of this obsessive grasping on to fixed ideologies and fixed views. It's amazing how much conflict happens <clears throat> around that in our world and in our lives. I remember a, a couple of years ago, I decided to do um, a ride along with one of the, our police officers in our town. How I decided to do that is a very long story, <laughs> very interesting story, but there I was. And um, the young police officer and, and we were chatting and I was asking him what the most common call was during his shift, which was I think between 2 p.m. and midnight. And it was uh, calls about domestic disputes and domestic violence. Um, people fighting fighting usually because of their views. And the other striking thing is it wasn't like it was a bunch of repeat offenders. It was amazing the variety of um, kind of fighting that he had to deal with uh, really every evening of his, of his duty. And the Buddha speaks to this. You know, he, he, he addresses this. He says, it is because of attachment to views Adherence to views, fixation on views, addiction to views, obsession with views, holding firmly to views, that people fight with people. So much of where suffering arises. And hopefully by now you might have noticed it's not just out there, but it's it's just within our own minds here. We, we fight with our own minds and we fight with other people in our own minds. <laughs> and a lot of times it's around this, um, this realm of views and getting attached to views. So what I'd like to explore with you tonight or share with you tonight is just asking this question, how do we skillfully become free of views? Of course, being able to utilize views, but not becoming obsessed or addicted with them. And that's the tricky thing, is there is a place for views, and yet there can be such an entanglement that leads to so much suffering. And in order to help with this exploration tonight, I, I want to, as I did in my last talk, venture a little bit away from early Buddhism and into Zen, you see my Zen influence here, back to uh, the Zen master Dogen and, and to hear what he, what he shares around views, which I find so helpful and, and really informs uh, my understanding of what we learn in early Buddhism. And this is from a, a fascicle, an essay of his called the Genjo Koan. So he says, he says, when the Dharma does not fill your whole body and mind, you think it is already sufficient. 
When Dharma fills your body and mind, you understand that something is missing. So I want to stop here because hopefully you hear, wait a minute, shouldn't it be the other way around? When the, when the, we usually think when the, when the Dharma fills my entire body and mind, I think, oh, everything is sufficient. And when it's only, only when the Dharma does not fill my whole body and mind that I think something is missing. But he's saying the opposite, isn't he? He's saying it's only when the Dharma does not fill your whole body and mind that you think it's already su- sufficient. You, you're, you're deluded thinking that everything's already sufficient. And it's only when there's this wisdom, this realization, the Dharma is completely filling your body and mind, that your understanding is this, that something is missing. So then he gives an example of this. He says, for example, when you sail out in in a boat to the middle of an ocean where no land is in sight and you view the four directions, the ocean looks circular and does not look any other way. And maybe you've done that. Maybe you've been out on a boat and you look around at the ocean and it kind of appears because of, of there's no land that it kind of looks circular. He goes on though, but he says, but the ocean is neither round nor square. Its features are infinite in variety. And then right here next, he, he's really referring to some Chinese literature about these descriptions of the ocean. He says, sometimes it is like a palace or it is like a jewel. It only lurk, looks circular as far as you can see at that time. All things are like this. Though there are many features in the dusty world and the world beyond conditions, you see and understand only what your eye of practice can reach. In order to learn the nature of the myriad things, you must know that although they may look round or square, the other features of oceans and mountains are infinite in variety. Whole worlds are there. It is so not only around you, but also directly beneath your feet or even in a drop of water. Do you understand what he's, he's pointing to here? He's really saying that you're never going to get to some ultimate view or explanation or, or perspective that's the real deal, that covers it all. That's delusion. That's the idea that there's some view out there that's going to be sufficient. And that we're filled with the Dharma when we realize that we can never have a complete perspective. That's actually the point of, of, of practice, is to come to realize that. That something's always missing with whatever, with whatever perspective we take. Because sometimes that's what we think the point of practice is, is that finally I'll get to the right view. <laughs> then I'll be done with this. I'll be done with all this sitting, finally. <laughs> but he's saying that, that's delusion. It's, it's coming to realize that, 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 that that's not out there to always understand something's missing, that there's, there's all these different views of the ocean. It does not, it's neither round nor square. Its features are infinite in variety. And that's the tricky thing, because I know my mind's like this. You know, we can think that this is the way the ocean really looks like. This is the way that person really is like. That yogi, I know what they're like. I completely know what this problem is like. I have the view. I now have the correct view of it. 
This is what we do to our experience and to the world. Maybe you've had that experience where you really feel like you have the right view. And have you noticed sometimes the trouble that makes? (laughs) Ouch. And it's when we deeply and truly know that we always can see only a part of what is there. We can only ever have a partial view. I think it really allows us to be open to other perspectives, a kind of humbleness in our lives. And as I said, there's, there's nothing wrong with having a view. There's, there's, um, there's a, a, a huge place in that on this path and in our lives is to have wise view or, or wise views. And this is the dance. How, do, how can there be not getting entangled in views, being free of views, being able to utilize views? Again, it's, it's important to have views. On this path, for example, there's such a, a basis of the view of non-harming that we uphold. This is the way we, we, we probably began the retreat in, in February around this, and then we, we uh, revisited it at the beginning of March, is the importance of ethical conduct, the sense of, of having a quality of non-harming with each other. That's a, that's a view, that's a value that we're, we're taking on. Even in the world of preferences, I realized... I needed to be clear about my preferences, my views about things. And I didn't realize this. I remember, you know, I spent all these years doing the monk thing. And I remember after leaving there, um, I was in a relationship. And I came to the realization, I had come to the point really, from all these years, I could really sit with, with anything. It was really profound to actually have all that time of, of practicing and sitting. But like in relationship and talking about what we each wanted to do, and my preferences, it was like, I was so clueless. <laughs> it was the worst thing for a relationship, too, to have somebody that couldn't, like, be there as a person. <laughs> it's important, isn't it? And yes, we're trying to see through the constructed nature of the self, and at the same time, I show up as a person with preferences. Most skillfully, I think, is what I come to realize is to have preferences, but not to be entangled with them. But I need to get clear about preferences, about certain views. And, and the path begins this way, with wise view. You know? To put it kind of in simpler terms, you know, that our actions have consequences, that, that we're taking up this frame of of beginning to investigate suffering and the end of suffering. The Buddha actually uh, gives a, an image of this in the Dhammapada about navigating views. And he, and he uh, says it's kind of like a kusa grass. So kusa grass was, a, was actually used, um, a kind of grass that was used in Vedic rituals and ceremonies. So it had these sacred connotations to it. And if you think of uh, certain grasses, if you hold it too tightly, right, and it, it goes through your hand, you're going to get cut because grass can be so sharp. But if the hand is open, there's not a problem. It's the relationship to that kusa grass. It's the relationship to the views.
So what are some skills that we cultivate around this to have a, a different relationship to views? And one is uh, what Dogen was, was, was pointing to. You know, maybe sometimes the ocean looks square or look, maybe looks round. Or as he says, maybe it is like a palace or like, it is like a jewel. What is it to be able to, to have a multiplicity of perspectives that sometimes feel like they're butting up against each other but are not? And I want to give an example of this and how important it is. And then tie it a little bit more into what we're doing here. I remember working with someone, this is uh, back when I was doing uh, much more uh, trauma work with individuals, and I was uh, working with an individual who was uh, struggling with their mother. And in particular, uh, they were sharing at, at uh, how wonderful their mother was in terms of their upbringing. And at the same time, we were nav- uh, exploring about how horrible her mother was and how damaging her mother was in her upbringing. And I remember there was this kind of this point in the investigation, this crisis point of realizing this kind of this, this breaking down where, where she said it so clearly, which really was the, the turning point where, where she kind of broke down and said, you know, I don't know how to hold my mother in one way. And it was with that statement that there was clarity, right? the attempt to hold someone in one way, in one view. Have you noticed how often we try to do that? We try to figure out, is that a good person or a bad person? Were they really wonderful or were they horrible? Which view is the correct view? And the idea that there is a correct view, that's where the delusion is. Ah, and then the Dharma fills us and we see that, oh, these views might be helpful, but we realize something is always missing because the human being in front of us is much vaster than any view that we can paste upon them. But have you noticed our minds do this? Have you noticed the stories your minds have been, been creating on this retreat? You know, for the last seven weeks or three weeks, You know, you see some yogi, some other yogi do something and it's like, it can feel like you have the view about them with such little information. I mean, it's it's just a trip how the mind does that. I mean, I know my mind does that. Maybe your mind does that, but that's what I've noticed. What a crazy mind. And it's because of this, this, this attempt to hold something in one way rather than this multiplicity. And also there's been this invitation in terms of how we've been talking about suffering here to have a multiplicity of views that sometimes feel like they conflict, but I really don't think they, they do. But it, but it takes this broader sense of the way things are. And it's this invitation we've been giving you around the dynamics of suffering that we're confronted with in these hearts and minds. Of really seeing that there are these views. You can, you can take the view of namely individual suffering or systemic suffering. And I want to give an example or kind of tell a story about this to, 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 to share a little bit about this multiplicity of views around suffering. 
and the skill of holding this in a broader way. Because sometimes the ocean looks square, sometimes it looks circular, sometimes it's like a palace or like a jewel. And in order to dive deeper into this, I'd like to um, share some things about the, um, actually just one thing, about the Canadian youth hockey team that won the championship in 2007. This is the <laughs> obvious thing to talk about, right? <laughs> I know that's what you're thinking about, youth hockey. It's my, uh, it's my practice is going well, right? Reading your mind. So this actually comes from a, a book by uh, Malcolm uh, Gladwell, uh, Outliers, the first chapter of this book, where in this first chapter, he shows us the roster of all the players of the youth, Canadian youth hockey team who won the championship in 2007. And to remember that, uh, just to imagine, these are the, the, for their age, they are the most skilled hockey players in all of Canada. They're winning the championship. And so he's kind of asking the, the reader and asking this question of, you know, what's the secret to their success of these hockey players? How did they get onto this team and how did they win the championship? And in particular, what was it that these hockey players had that other hockey players in their league didn't have? What was the one thing in common? And it's an interesting thing to think about. What is it? Maybe it was because of their, their strong work ethic or their natural athletic ability. It could have been maybe something that they had individually, like weight or their height. But it was none of those things. What was it? It was simply the month that they were born in. Which is a trip, right? They're, the closer they were, if they were born in January or closer to January, there was a, a much more likelihood of becoming a professional hockey player or to be really at the top of the game. And then uh, Malcolm Gladwell explains this, how, how this dynamic works. He says, it's simply that in Canada, the eligibility cutoff, age, cutoff for age class hockey is January 1st. So when a boy who turns 10 on January 2nd then could be playing alongside someone who doesn't turn 10 until the end of the year, and at that age, in pre-adolescence, a 12-month gap in age represents an enormous difference in physical maturity. And then what happens, so right, so the, do you understand what he's saying? There's basically, just because you, you group all of these kids together, sometimes earlier than 10 years old, you put them on the same team, just that year gap in development gives the kids who were born in January this huge extra leap ahead of everyone else. And then it starts to cascade because what happens is those players start to stick out. And then the reps for better teams pick those, those, um, those kids. And then those kids get better coaching. They get more time to practice. They get players that are more, uh, more skilled to practice against. They get a lot of people telling them how good they are. And then all of a sudden, voila, there are these amazing hockey players. 
Right? So this is a particular view. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's this view of seeing these systemic influences that have a huge impact. Right? That there is a system in place that gives rise to some people being more successful than others. And I want to point out, it's, it's just one view. It doesn't mean that none of those boys didn't work hard or that they weren't disciplined and really worked at playing hockey. It's just pointing out that there are other factors involved, these systemic factors that are also at play. And I emphasize this because the systemic view, for example, around systemic suffering, is such an important view because in the dominant culture in this, in this country, it's the individual view that's more pre prevalent because of this emphasis on individualism in the dominant culture. And so the systemic view can be so difficult to see. And so much so that you might notice sometimes there's a rigid view around that, that the, the, the way things unfold is through individual performance, not through systems. So here, again, we have these two views. Yes, that is one view. The individual view can be helpful. But the other view, the systemic view, is also essential. And so in the same way, what I want to point out is that the frame that we're offering you here for what we're doing is that we're here to address both individual suffering and co collective or systemic suffering. Because it really helps skillfully frame our practice. And we've been talking about individual forms of, of suffering. For example, Andrea, just last night, that, that whole exploration of self-hatred and the navigation of that. Susie was answering that question about the suffering around our relationship to how our bodies look. I was speaking to you about that feeling of sometimes feeling not enough or a sense of lack. But also you've probably heard in many of our talks alluding to how there are these systemic dimensions to these flavors of suffering. Right? Again, last night, systemic dimensions around the messages about what women can and can't do. Societal messages Systemic message is about body image, the bodies that are seen as attractive, the body, bodies that are seen as unattractive, which ties into these societal messages about who's less than and better, better than around skin color or ability or gender. And yes, I want to point out the, the picking of the month of January in my example to be the beginning point in age groupings, probably there was no intention by someone out there being like, wow, I really like people that were born in January, so let's pick January so they can have a, a leap ahead of everyone else. But I think there's so many systems out there that we can't say that about, that we can see the dimensions of greed, hatred, and delusion, the dimensions of reactivity that are in these minds here that are at play in those systems. You know, the, the mind of conceit that sees better than, less than, right? It's created this racialized society that we're in. 
And so just as, you know, in this room, we have our struggles on the individual level around anger or self-hatred or fear or sadness or desire. You know, th- th- those are there arising and passing away in our hearts and minds. These systemic dynamics, dynamics are also arising and passing away in these hearts and minds. Right? It's here in this room. Right? There's, a larger, there's a larger proportion of white people on this retreat than there is in the larger U.S. society. That's because there's a systemic dynamic that's going around, a kind of flavor of suffering that, that's happening in this room in that way. We spoke about this in terms of this, the, this is just the, the makeup of the teaching team. It plays out in front of us. As I mentioned before, the cool thing is, is we can practice in a way to start to address that. What a powerful thing to do, to not only practice on the individual level, but the systemic level. So we're here to free the heart and mind, and the heart and mind have both individual and and systemic or collective dimensions to it. Sometimes the ocean looks square, sometimes it looks circular, sometimes it's like a palace, sometimes like a jewel. Both of these views are, are so important. And I want to point out, when I'm sharing with, all, uh, with you all of this, we're still doing the same practice. It's simply noticing what's going on moment after moment. Oh, there's an in-breath, there's an out-breath. There's a sound that comes and goes. There's an emotion that starts to bubble up and then dissipates. There's a pain in the knee. There's aversion to it. There's, a, there's this reactivity that we can notice. There's joy, there's peace. And we notice these undulations in our experience. So same practice, but the way we frame it is is so important. So back to Dogen, getting a deeper sense of how to to relate to views. So we have this first piece that I gave you, this this ability to hold a multiplicity of views, and this example around the systemic and the individual views. Again, coming back to this question, you know, as Dogen says, when the Dharma fills your body and mind, you you understand that something is missing. How can we allow the Dharma to fill our bodies and minds around this issue of views. Back to, um, let's get back to early Buddhism. The story. Once upon a time, Ananda, the Buddha's attendant, decided to go down to uh, Taboda Hot Springs. And so he had gone down to these hot springs and it was before the sun had risen uh, to bathe. And so he had taken out off his clothes and he was in the hot springs and there was another um, kind of wanderer there, another spiritual practitioner. And he didn't have his robes on. So 
you know, the, the other practitioner, you know, wasn't, didn't know who he really was. And so he asked Ananda, so Ananda, are you a monk? And Ananda said, oh yes, yeah, I'm a monk. And he wanted to know kind of a little bit about Ananda. So he asked him, what kind of views do you hold? And he kind of went through kind of a classical list that you find in a lot of these stories, kind of asking him, do you think the cosmos is eternal? And Ananda would say, no. Well, do you think it's not eternal? And Ananda would say, no. And he kept on going through all these different views. And Ananda basically said through all of it, you know, I don't hold any of those views. So this, this practitioner was a little bit perplexed. So he said to Ananda, well, it sounds like you do not know and you do not see. Basically saying, you might be a monk, but it doesn't seem like you have much wisdom. It seemed like you really have gained anything from the spiritual path because you, you don't know or see anything. You don't have any views, it seems like. And then Ananda says, oh, no, I do know and I do see. So the practitioner basically was like, well, wait a minute, I just asked you all these questions and you couldn't tell me what view you hold on to. So what do you mean that you know and see? This doesn't make sense to me. And so Ananda says, he basically says this notion quote, kind of this idea, only this is true and anything otherwise is worthless. That I see as a viewpoint. The extent to which there are viewpoints, view stances, the taking up of views, obsessions of views, the cause of views, the uprooting of views, that's what I know. That's what I see. Knowing that I say, I know. Seeing that, I say, I see. Why should I say I don't know, I don't see? I do know, I do see. Do you hear the wisdom in that? To be able to see that views are just views. And that views are just limited views. Really, this is the turn that we're cultivating in this practice here. You're lost in thought. You're having some argument with somebody in your mind. You're telling them maybe that you have the right view about whatever thing or situation that your your mind loves to think about. And then, right, there's the turn. There's the turn that happens in the practice that's so important. The turn that comes with mindfulness, where there's a, a, a clear seeing. Oh, this is simply the arising of a view. Interesting. Oh, interesting. And what comes with that is there's a feeling of irritation connected with that. Or the feeling of excitement or the feeling of, of wanting. And then maybe it's getting a sense of how the mind's relating to it. The mind's okay with that or it's averse to that. That's the practice that Ananda was explaining. Oh, I do know, I do see in that moment. That is what it is to, to know and to see. To actually know and see that a view is arising and passing away. Because it, it includes that turning to seeing it rather than being lost in it.
it's that recognition, oh, oh, this is just the rising of, a, of the view of the ocean. Sometimes it looks round, sometimes it looks square, sometimes it's a jewel, sometimes it's like a palace. And the Buddha gives more details about this quality of knowing and seeing views. He asked this question, so how is there the severance of the bond of views? How, there, how do we cut the cord of being attached to views? And then he explains, he says, there is the case where a certain person discerns as it is actually present, the origination, the passing away, the allure, the drawbacks and the escape from views. When they discerned as it is actually is present, the origination, the passing away, the allure, the drawbacks and the escape from views, then with regard to views, they are not obsessed with view passion, view delight, view attraction, view infatuation, view craving. This, this is the severance of the bond of views. I want to go back, I want to go through this just a little bit so we can get a sense of what we do know and see when we come to see the arising of a view, when we, when we get unhooked from being lost in it. Right? There's a case where a certain person discerns as it is actually present the origination and the passing away of views. This is really simple. Oh, that thought arises in the mind. It's a certain view of a person or a situation or a dilemma. There it is. It's interesting, it arises, but then it passes away. Oh, and there's the breath, or there's the sound. It's just a, a thought bubble that comes and goes. That's the knowing and seeing that Ananda was talking about. Oh, there's the allure of it. Have you noticed the allure of your views? I'm so allured by my views. I really do think I'm right about a lot of things. Most days I think, wow, I'm so right about this. No, it's horrible, huh? But have you, have you ever felt that addiction to your views? It's so alluring. You get hooked by them. And I think it's when I'm, when I'm caught in the allure of them. I think, I think I've mentioned this before. Sometimes if I can tell myself, especially if it's an ongoing crisis in my life, Brian, do you want to be right or do you want to be free? Helpful to remember where I want to set my eye, not on simply being right, but, but more importantly, freedom. So it's seeing that, oh, there's something alluring about that. That's, that's part of the knowing and the seeing. And then the drawbacks. Wow, I can feel the sting of this, the contraction of my life around certain views. Oh, I can't meet another person. I can't even meet myself when I'm lost in views. Oh, there's such a drawback to that. As I was saying, boy, so much fighting happens in this world around that. But it's actually the feeling sense of that in the moment, of the suffering that comes with attachment to views. And then the escape. What's the escape from views? All of what I described, seeing and knowing, it's the seeing that frees. 
It's seeing that views come and go. It's seeing the drawback of them. It's seeing how alluring they are. And when the mind sees that again and again and again, there can be a disentangling from views so that we can utilize views skillfully. So I invite you to notice that, to become curious when there's a certain view that arises in the mind. And I think with a number of these talks, we've also talked about how, you know, experience gets constructed. You could say even views get constructed. You know, there's a moment of contact, there's seeing. You know, there's a, it's an unpleasant sight or a pleasant sight. There can be a kind of craving that can start to make the stories go. And then there can be a, a fixing around that, that puts sometimes a view in place. Sometimes it's, it's something that doesn't happen that triggers it. You, know, you leave a note for a teacher or a manager and you don't hear back from them. Boy, sometimes we can feel like so clear about our view about what's going on with that. Have you noticed that? <laughs> it's amazing. Just because a note might not be up there. You know, announcement in the hallway or an interaction that happens during your yogi job. Conditions come together and then there's a fixing of a view. And it's, it's just wild that the things that can come out of that. Remember... One clear example of this, I was walking around in, in Flagstaff and it was um, election season. And I remember I was walking by this house and they had a political sign up of someone I did not want to win. So it was, it was a, a visual sense contact that was unpleasant. <laughs> and it was amazing. I mean, I was walking and just by seeing that, the next thing, the next thought in my mind was how horrible the people were in that house. I mean, I didn't even know if there were people living in the house. I didn't know how many. I didn't know anything about them. I just saw a sign. And there was a creation of a view of a world around basically a bunch of letters on a sign. That is, that is the fixation of a view. That can be so harmful. And that, that story of the house leads me really to the, maybe to the most important thing I'm going to say. The one thing you need to remember about my talk. And a story to, to explain it. Of course, uh, another Zen story. So it's uh, about Fayan, who, and this is before he was a Zen master. He, he turned out to be a, 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 a one of the great Chinese Zen masters. But at one point uh, during his uh, practice, he was traveling with uh, some fellow monastics from temple to temple, something that was common to do. Traveling from one temple to another friends traveling around and they came um, to a hermitage and the hermit, the Zen master Dizong was there who was really known to be this great um, Zen master and he came out of his hermitage and he said to Fayan, where are you going? 
And remember, you know, when Zen masters ask you any kind of question like that, you know they're testing you. It's always good to remember that. <laughs> so there he was. I mean, he wanted to know the caliber of this young monk here. You know, was, what was he like? It's a good question to ask to really get a sense of it. You know, where are you going? And Fayan said, oh, on pilgrimage, wherever my feet take me. And so Dizong pokes a little bit further. And he says, well, what do you expect from pilgrimage? And Fayan says, I don't know. Dizong, I think, is impressed. He says, ah, not knowing is most intimate. Not knowing, not knowing is most intimate. And what I want to point out about the, the story, which I think is really important, is that I think when Zen Master, the Zen Master Dizong asked Fayan, what do you expect from, pilgr from pilgrimage? I don't think he was trying to give some kind of fancy Zen answer to make himself look good. He honestly didn't know. He had no idea what was going to come of it. And he was okay with that. And not only that, he was okay expressing, you know, I really don't know. Can you cultivate this quality of not knowing? And when I say not knowing in this context, not the not knowing of ignorance, more the not knowing of openness to experience. Openness to the uncertain world. The openness that comes with, with this not knowing because we know that always something is missing. So important and so difficult, right? We live in a world where, where, we're, where uh, it's reinforced how important it is for us to know. Probably some of you have gotten really good jobs in your life because you convinced somebody that you know, right? Isn't that funny? And they believed you, so they gave you a job. Maybe they gave you a good salary. So it reinforces that sense. So important to have this quality of not knowing. Yes, we're here to see clearly what's going on moment after no moment. But this quality of not knowing in terms of views. I'd like to um, now share with you another story because I, I think the piece that's sometimes missing that can be so confusing around this, this exploration of views is this question of, um, well, how do we engage in views? Because as I've been saying, this is seeing clearly that a view is just a view. And I really want to emphasize there is a place to have strong views. It's just how we hold them and how we navigate them, which is so important. So I said, and again, a, a talk 
uh, a while ago that maybe awakening is just the ability to have an appropriate response. And that this different relationship to views allows for an appropriate response. I want to share a story of, of, of a quality of someone who holds views, I think, very strongly but very clearly. And as a result, can have an appropriate resu- response. <clears throat> and uh, this is a story of, um, some of you may know this, this story. It's such a... Such a great story. And it's about this guy, uh, Daryl Davis. And he was a, a musician with, you know, he was a musician with a bunch of white guys in a country band. This African-American guy. And so here he was, you know, they were playing in all white venues. And um, in one of these, such a, in some ways I can't even believe this story. So in one of these white venues, he actually meets a member of the KKK. And it, at first, you know, when the guy told him that he was part of the KKK, he couldn't believe it. So, he, you know, this guy <laughs> took out a card and showed it to him. And um, they actually started to hang out together. <laughs> and, um, and as a result of that, you know, it actually, he, he, in some ways, he started this hobby of meeting people in the KKK and making these, these friendships. And actually, through his friendships with um, actually a number of uh, Klansmen, they left the KKK. And it was really fascinating to hear in detail about how he related to them and how he engaged in these, these relationships. And I do want to say this is you know, a little bit extreme, but very interesting. And this is some of what he shared about this relationship that he had with these, these men. He said, the most important thing I learned is that when you are actively learning about someone else, you are passively teaching them about your, yourself. So if you have an adversary with an opposing point of view, give them that person a platform. Allow them to air that point of view, regardless of how extreme it may, me, it may be. And believe me, I've heard things so extreme at these places, they'll cut you to the bone. And then he continued, he said, and then you challenge them. You don't challenge them rudely or violently. You do it politely and intelligently. And when you do things that way, chances are they will reciprocate and give you a platform. So he and I, this is uh, Roger Kelly, I think who was the kind of the imperial wizard of the KKK for a while. So he and I would sit down and listen to one another over a period of time, and the cement that held his ideas together began to get cracks in it, and then it began to crumble, and then it fell apart. So this was his process, you know, and, and actually there's a, there's, you'll find it, there's a picture of him where he has a, a closet full of these KKK robes that had been given to him, of people who had... <laughs> had left. And he was criticized for this, actually. The, somebody from the NAACP criticized him for it, for, for the sense. And, and I think his rebuke was, how many robes do you have? And when I share this, I don't mean this as a prescription for dealing with these, these kinds of situations. There's so many ways of dealing with these situations. And there's not one way. And I wouldn't want to prescribe one way at all, or even say I, I support just one way. But it's a description, I think, of someone who holds views in a very skillful way, that he's very clear about his views. 
about addressing systems of oppression, but doing it incredibly skillfully. So may our our clarity of knowing and seeing views, being able to also rest in in the openness of not knowing, lead to the liberation of all beings. Thank you. Let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.